Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, a place for interdisciplinary conversations in the broad world of business research. My name is Andrew Jennings, and it's my pleasure to be your host. If you like what you hear today, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Plus, leave a rating and let other people know about the show, too. And if you have ideas for the show, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. All right, time for the episode. Before we start the conversation with today's guest, I wanted to take a minute and thank you, the listeners, for joining us today on the 200th episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. And I'd also like to thank the 225 guests who've appeared on the show since it got its start in 2019, as well as the hundreds of listeners who tune in for each episode. I really can't wait for the next 200 episodes to come. With that, I'd like to welcome today's guest, Mariana Pargindler, a professor of law at FGV Law School in Sao Paulo and an incoming professor of law at Harvard University. We'll be discussing her paper, Corporate Law in the Global South, Heterodox Stakeholderism, and I'll add a link to the paper in the show notes for the episode. Mariana, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, and perhaps uh, a first question for our conversation. You frame this paper around a really intriguing word, uh, heterodoxy. I wondered if you could introduce the concept of heterodoxy. What do you mean by heterodoxy in corporate law and in the corporate context? And perhaps by implication, what do you mean by orthodoxy or orthodoxy in corporate law and the corporate context? This paper is part of a broader project with Kevin Davis from NYU on legal heterodoxy in the global south. So we have published a law review article on contract law and inequality, and we are organizing a book volume with contributors from around the world on legal heterodoxy in the global south, which is forthcoming by Cambridge University Press. Though that project has a broader focus and also covers other areas of law. So we've thought a lot about this particular terminology, and this is what we have in mind. We are defining legal heterodoxy in two ways. First one is that it means something different from the legal rules and institutions that one would find in the global north, even accounting for the fact that the global north is not homogenous. The second way is by incorporating broader public policy and distribution objectives into private law, and in this case, corporate law. By contrast, orthodoxy is what we have in the global north. So in this paper, which is part of the book volume, and it will also be published in the Seattle University Law Review as part of the Burley Symposium, I address heterodox stakeholderism, which means different forms of stakeholder protection in corporate law that are distinct from the types of stakeholder protection if anyone would find in corporate law rules in the global north. I would just add that one way to think about heterodoxy in the substantive sense is that it deviates from what I have called the modularity approach to law and economics, which is the idea that each area of law should focus on one economic problem of corporate law that would be agency costs. I leave distributive objectives to the tax and transfer system and externalities to be addressed by other areas of law. I'm looking to deviations of this modular approach and also taking into account in ways that are different from whatever the norm is in the global norm. 
I'd like to level set a little bit with some terminology. We've talked about the global north and by implication, the global south. Can you just maybe define what those concepts capture? And with that, how have scholars or practitioners or judges from the global north typically, or maybe even stereotypically thought about corporate law in the global south? And to what extent are those characterizations maybe inapt or missing the point? What sort of gap or clarifications are you offering in this paper? Great question. So let me start with the first one about the concept of the global south and the global north. And this is a great question because really these terms are used with different meanings in the literature. For purposes of this project, as well as my other works on legal heterodoxy, we're really using a global north as a synonym for developed countries and global south as a synonym for developing countries. So global south, countries up to medium income levels, and global north would be high income countries. This is not the only use of that terminology in the literature. Some works address the global north and south as relating to different epistemic or methodological sensibilities so that one could Think about the north within the south or the south within the north. This is not what we are doing. And I think here we are following a trend. And I've seen the move in the literature in replacing developed versus developing countries with global north and global south. And I think there's some connotations associated with that. But going to the question about how developing countries or emerging markets or the global south is viewed traditionally in the global north. The first thing to keep in mind is that these countries have been generally neglected. A traditionally comparative law has focused deliberately even on a handful of jurisdictions in the global north. But there are views or stereotypes, as you noted. And those are the views that those laws, including corporate laws, are either antiquated or they are failed transplants for institutions that do not account for local context, or they are perfectly adequate laws on the books, but they face problems of enforcement. And I certainly think there is something to those views, and I certainly believe in problems of enforcement in the global South. But this is really only part of the story. So this perspective is incomplete and impoverished, in my view. So in this paper, I try to show how Global South jurisdictions have pioneered distinct approaches to stakeholder protection in corporate law. So there is a greater innovation, for good or for bad, in the corporate laws in the Global South that has not been captured by the existing literature. And if I may add, Andrew, it has not been captured by the existing literature because when the literature happens to look at the global south, it does based on a questions or issues or standards that come up from their views in the global world. So before this project, I had heard of corporate laws in Malaysia and I had read that Malaysia scores very highly in the investor protection part of the Rose Bank, now defunct doing business rankings. But I did not know that Malaysia had a pioneering, highly aggressive program of affirmative action in corporate ownership. And that is because that's not something that is in the minds of people in the global north. So it doesn't get captured by usual approaches which come from a global north style uh, checklist. 
I'd like to talk about some of the comparative instances or case studies that you offer in the paper in just a moment, but perhaps maybe to think about distinctions between orthodox corporate law and the heterodox stakeholderism that you theorize in this paper with the proviso that just as in the global north, the global south jurisdictions are going to follow heterogeneous approaches, there's going to be heterogeneity in the global south. Can you talk us through perhaps some of the political economy around the emergence of heterodox stakeholderism? What are some of the institutional and social, political, economic paths that these jurisdictions follow that help us understand this topic of heterodox stakeholderism? So the main story here is one of adaptation of private laws and corporate law in particular to local conditions. So the idea here is that global south jurisdictions are poorer, more unequal, and also have greater challenges of state capacity in addressing externalities through other areas of law. So this puts pressure on corporate law to help with these problems. You can think of this as the flip side, or perhaps even a corollary of the modularity approach uh, to law and economics. If other areas of law are not doing their job, then you have this open question about whether a certain area of law can come to accomplish broader objectives. So this is one central part of the argument. Another point that I would like to raise is that at least some manifestations of corporate law heterodoxy in the global south respond to dynamics of global south versus global north distribution. And the topic of distribution is generally absent from a corporate law scholarship, which is highly modular and really believes in boundaries between areas of law, but interestingly does not care much about boundaries between jurisdictions. So in this way, this corporate law scholarship is very different from, say, international intellectual property scholarship. In IP, there is a clear sense that strong IP protection can come to benefit global north jurisdictions that are the innovators at the expense of global south jurisdictions, which would be only paying uh, monopoly profits. But that type of analysis has not reached corporate law, and I'm trying to begin exploring whether that can also account for some heterodox manifestations, and I explore this in the paper in the context of the limited liability of parent companies for towards or environmental harm. So India came to mitigate such limited liability in the context of a terrible environmental disaster involving thousands of local victims and in a company controlled by a foreign multinational. And I think this type of case really shows the, the distributive implications. Certainly, the issue of limited liability for towards is a dear one to the line economics literature. Hansman and Crackman, for instance, have a famous paper arguing that it is inefficient. And I think this, what we're seeing is that, yes, it is inefficient. And there are some distributive implications at play that perhaps make it more likely that jurisdictions in the global south would resist such limited liability because it hurts them the most. I love your point from the, the start of uh, your answer there around corporate law as a flip side to the modularity approach of law and economics, corporate law, perhaps serving as a conduit for addressing 
broader social needs or concerns in some jurisdictions. And from my US-centric seat here, I think about current debates we're having in corporate law around ESG or corporate political activity that might in some way be a response to a failure of state capacity or a failure of democratic processes, etc. So I, I think that there's a great point of learning, a comparative point of learning for the global north here as well that might be confronting some of the, the same, same dynamics. In this paper, this is a comparative paper that looks at a few jurisdictions, some are really hard questions, both for society and for corporate law, around limited liability, around corporate social responsibility, racial inclusion in corporate law and economic life. I wonder if you can maybe highlight some of those case studies and, and perhaps how they flesh out this concept of, of heterodox stakeholderism. First, let me just pause to agree with your first point about the parallel between the crisis of modularity in the global south and the rise of ESG and stakeholders in the global north. And for me, this is a very interesting point because does he mean that current debates in the global north are coming to look more like what we've had traditionally in the global south? And that is a different view about the evolution of corporate law than the ones that existed in the literature that were framed around convergence to the Anglo-American model and a shareholder orientation, which is often associated with the end of history for corporate law, or perhaps just convert, just persistence of whatever you had before. I think what we're seeing here is some form of reverse convergence. Instead of the global south necessarily converging to the norms in the global north, we also are seeing some opposite movement. And I think it's precisely because of the crisis of the modularity approach, if one thinks that other areas of law are not doing their job in in fixing social problems and, and externalities. So in terms of some of the manifestations of heterodox stakeholderism in the global south, I would start by mentioning the issue of limited liability and long-had critiques to limited liability vis-a-vis non-contractual creditors or tort creditors in the literature in law and economics, but we've seen relatively little movement in the global north, at least compared to what we see in the global south. So Brazil is a leader of veil piercing. It has greatly mitigated, if not eliminated, limited liability vis-a-vis workers, consumers, victims of environmental harm, even with respect in connection with the failure of financial institutions. And in the latter context was clearly deliberate. Regulators felt that it's very hard to regulate financial institutions. And, and the best that they can do is to incentivize through liability managers and controlling shareholders to care for, for stability. So this is the situation in Brazil. So limited liability has been mitigated the most precisely in areas concerning stakeholder protection. But it's not only Brazil, it's also India. I mentioned that before. And it's quite curious because when India is portrayed in the comparative literature, its approach to limited liability or the liability of parent companies is as unique or revolutionary, which is precisely because jurisdictions in the global South are often not compared to each other. So I, I use this example to suggest there's some form of odd duck syndrome in the literature because the global south is only studied in isolation and compared to the global north without self-comparisons, which in turn allows us to discern some common patterns. 
But there are various other manifestations. One, which is very famous even, is the adoption of mandatory corporate social responsibility spending in India, which was enacted through the Companies Act of 2013. So companies must dedicate uh, 2% of their profits to social responsibility initiatives. And since 2013, that regulation has only been expanded to even discern activities that are worthy of the label and those are not. But it's interesting also that India is not alone. Uh, Indonesia had some form of spending in earlier rules, Mauritius came to follow along. And, and that can be understood in different ways. One is that maybe that is compensating for difficulties of the state in uh, doing its job. So U.S. companies to do the spending. Another interpretation is that helps create legitimacy for the market economy by showing that companies are also doing things for the common good. You also mentioned diversity, which is a, an area of growing interest in the global north and has been set for a while. Especially racial diversity is, is a bit more recent. Usually the story goes that diversity became a, a thing when Norway first enacted gender quotas in the mid-2000s. Uh, and that was very important. And now so many countries have gender quotas or other initiatives relating to gender diversity. But I would like here to point to South Africa's experience with Black economic empowerment, which had a specific corporate governance a component. I find it very telling that right after Nelson Mandela left jail in 1990, in one of his speeches, he noted that Jonas' book, Stock Exchange, was really too white and male. And since then, the issue of diversity in corporate governance gained a lot of traction in South Africa, culminating in the broad based Black Economic Empowerment Act, it's a mouthful, <laughs> of 2003, which has components, which gives, it's a scorecard, and there are points awarded to different dimensions, but those include Black ownership, Black board representation, also procurement from Black firms, and there are separate points awarded to Black women. And Aisha Moglu and, and his co-authors, prominent economists, I have posited that type of initiative could not only, of course, increase diversity, but also help avoid other destructive forms of populism in view of the terrible record of South Africa in terms of racial inequality and discrimination. Your work really, I think, raises for me a, a methodological question around perhaps the tendency of scholars or judges in the global north and in law schools and business schools and policy schools, economics departments, et cetera, to take an Anglo-American end of history approach to corporate law and, and corporate theory, maybe with occasional comparative work with Germanic corporate law, perhaps as a common counterpoint. I wonder if you could talk about the methodological risks of that approach and perhaps some of the opportunities of taking a more comparative approach is a lack of global north, global south, and, and lateral south comparative law. Is that potentially something that impoverishes corporate law theory in the global north? And are there any opportunities for scholars to fill that gap going forward? Great question. I do believe that the academy in the global north has had to narrow a conception of corporate theory and corporate law. But that can be true of any context. And let me use your question here to do some advertising or defense for comparative work. 
I think comparative war is really interesting, of course, to know about other legal systems and that happens through comparative work. But I do think that one of the things that comes out of comparative work is a better understanding even of one's legal system. In a way, comparative is constitutive of identity. So you can only understand the features of your system if you have a broader perspective of other possible institutional manifestations. Just as an anecdote here, many years ago, I think now almost 10 years ago, I was invited to join the third edition of The Anatomy of Corporate Law, which is a comparative corporate law book from a law and economics perspective. And when I accepted the invitation, I thought, well, that would be a great opportunity. I will learn so much about other jurisdictions. And I certainly did learn about other jurisdictions. But for me, out of that experience, what would really uh, came to change my worldview and influence my scholarship is how I came to view Brazil. <laughs> because in a way, the heterodoxies that I'm now identifying were really visible in that project in ways that were not necessarily visible in just my day-to-day life, uh, teaching corporate law corporate law in Brazil. So I think, yes, we learn a lot about other systems. This is important to expand one's institutional imagination and not only to imagine alternative institutions, but also to even understand the true driving forces and confirmations of our own institutions. So yes, I do think that the view has been too narrow and a comparative approach can certainly help in that regard. What key takeaways would you like listeners to have for this paper and for this interview. And this is the 200th episode of the podcast. So if we were to maybe talk again in a hundred episodes from now, what open questions are you thinking about now that maybe you will have tackled by then? I do think there's a lot more innovation in the global South than has been acknowledged. And based on this work, I think there's so much more to be done. Until now, the main division in the comparative Law literature has been between common law and civil law, and economists have also taken a huge interest in that distinction. There's a lot to be said about it and a lot to be said against it. But I do think there's a lot to be learning, exploring differences between the global south and the global north, and as well as similarities across the global south through south comparisons. I'm really interested in what can be gained in incorporating the global south into analysis of comparative corporate law. So things are not, it's, the story is not only one of failure and blind copy and things that don't work. There are certainly lots of challenges. And here, I think I would like to highlight that I do not necessarily think that heterodoxy is good or bad. I actually don't think you can make such an assessment at a high level of generality. So uncovering such differences, I think this opens a huge research agenda in trying to understand the impact of these different roles and institutions in ways that haven't been even realized because they hadn't been mapped. So this is what I have for now, Andrew. Really congratulations. I'm a fan of the podcast and it's amazing that you've had 200 episodes by now. I'm really honored to be part of it. Our guest today has been Mariana Pargindler, professor of law at FGV Law School. We've discussed her new paper, Corporate Law in the Global South, Heterodox Stakeholderism, 
I'll link to the paper in the show notes for the episode. Mariana, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard today, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, rate the show, and let other people know about it too. If you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.